Nation. Providing you with the practical tools and expert knowledge to optimize your strength, health and mindset inside and out. With your host, Steve Katarzy. Guys, this is by far the best nutrition discussion I have ever had, not just on the mics, but full stop. It is fantastic. It has been life-changing for me in just the two weeks since I recorded this, and I think you're going to like it too. I believe we are closing in on shattering some nutritional paradigms of this discussion and generally the movement that it underpins. So get ready, guys. We are talking all things carnivore diet with the incredible Dr. Paul Saladino. Now, Paul got his medical degree at the University of Arizona in 2015. He's a practicing physician as well as a functional medicine practitioner, and he's risen up the social media ranks and podcast popularity over the last six months or so as a fascinating proponent of the carnivore diet. He's been a pure plague carnivore for the last eight months, and his popularity is in part because of his science-led lens on the carnivore diet, his encyclopedic-like knowledge on all things food and human biochemistry, human evolution, and all the supporting studies to back up his position. So specifically, what can you expect to hear in this two-part discussion? Well, firstly, Paul walks you and I through the startling evolutionary, scientific, and intuitive evidence that suggests that humans are actually facultative carnivores as opposed to omnivores, and that the more we can return to this biologically preferred state, the better for optimal wellness and performance. It's a discussion that helps make a solid case for why and how we can get complete and full nutrition from a nose-to-tail carnivore way of eating. It's a case for upping your meat consumption significantly. We also walk you through enormous amounts of data, or lack thereof, that supports the ideas that plants were not made for humans, and that most plants come with a toxic load that we would be better off to avoid. Moreover, Paul hits us right between the eyes with this concept that we should stop choosing to eat plant-based nutrition because we think it's healthy and good for us. He makes strong argument throughout this discussion that demonstrates that most plant-based foods can in actual fact be net negative to health. I mean, just crazy concepts, guys, that flies in the face of conventional wisdom and facts that we hold as gospel. Is Paul wrong? Or have we been self-perpetuating untruths about diet and nutrition in this plant agriculture echo chamber? Well, you'll need to listen to hear more, to hear some foundational nutritional principles debunked. And from there, you can make up your own conclusions. This two-part discussion is not just postulating and spouting scientific facts and literature, however. We do spend the second part getting into the practical elements of nutrition. So based on what Paul understands, I challenge the rigid and restrictive carnivore diet to see where there is some flex, you know, where there's some wiggle room. And whilst Paul paints a fairly damning picture for most plant foods, I was surprised and encouraged 
to hear quite a bit of flexibility if the person both wants it and is otherwise healthy. We touch on cooking vegetables, we talk about chocolate, wine, coffee, Paul's main no-go category when it comes to plant foods, getting crunch in a carnival diet, we talk about what plant foods are considered safe and benign, I ask about herbs and spices and whether they're in or out, understanding how we would alleviate our sweet needs, and Paul gives us his take on eggs and dairy as part of the carnivore diet. In total, this conversation lasts two hours, but I tell you what, not a second is wasted. It's so full of gems and earth-shattering concepts. I think you're going to love this two-parter. And whatever your position is after this episode, it will absolutely trigger some discussion and dialogue on what is optimal wellness and whether we have the correct knowledge and beliefs or are we willing to challenge some of the foundations that our very view on nutrition and health is underpinned by? That's a question for you to ponder on as you listen to the next two hours and two podcasts. Guys, enjoy it and I'm sure you're going to have questions. I'm sure you're going to have thoughts and I'd love to hear them get through to us on the Adaptation Facebook page or Adaptation Instagram feed. Enjoy, guys. Adaptation. All righty, guys. Listen, every once in a while, there's that one person that just explodes on the scene. Someone who shatters your paradigm. Someone whose time in, relevance, and uniqueness is on their side. Someone who blows you away with their knowledge and ability to communicate pristinely. Well, you've got one of those pure gems on this podcast today. I'm so excited beyond belief to be having this guy on the call today. I find him captivating and compelling in his attempt to push against tsunami of food dogma that we've got in 2019. So we've got the man of 2019 nutrition. Anyway, at least that's what I'm going to be calling him. I anticipate uh, to be the case as we play this year through. Dr. Paul Saladino. Welcome, my man. It's so good to be here, Steve. Thanks for having me on. It's super fun. That's an incredibly complimentary intro. I'll try and live up to it. I'll do my best. It's been a fun year for me. Well, if if any of your podcasts are anything to go by, I think you're going to do this walking on your head. And I just kind of wanted to kind of dip into that for a second. So my exposure to you has been short, but I've listened to about five podcasts of yours in a space of a month. And I'm just just captivated truly uh, in your discussion around the carnivore diet, which we're obviously going to get into. But just give us a sense of this whirlwind, this this tsunami of Paul Saladino. How 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 um, long have you been on the scene? How how long have you been in the public eye? Let's let's put it that way. Not very long, <laughs> not very long. It's really only been four or five months, and it's been it's been a fun it's been a fun roller coaster. You know, it's been a fun build up. I originally connected with Sean Baker through the carnivore community. I reached out to him and said, "Hey." I'm super interested in psychiatry. My formal training as a physician is in psychiatry. I, I definitely see things from kind of a functional medicine, holistic perspective, but formally I'm trained in psychiatry. So I got excited about the benefits of a carnivore diet for mental health and to really change the paradigm. And I said, hey, Sean, let me come on your show. And I did Sean's podcast about five months ago. And ever since then, it's just been sort of this kind of simmering, bubbling pot that's 
gradually getting hotter and hotter. And it's been so fun to learn stuff and interact with people and go on different podcasts and meet different people and kind of evolve the message and learn as I'm going through it. So it's, it's a great ride. And I can see you getting connected like with, with all the players, which is fantastic, man. So like, Godspeed to you, man. I'm, I'm loving what you're doing. Um, maybe just let's give the, the listeners a bit of context as to why we're having this chat. So I've spoken to Sean Baker, had him on the podcast a couple months ago. And um, again, I was, I was compelled with his message of, um, you know, pushing against the, the kind of vegan movement. Um, not that I've got anything against veganism or what people stand for or, or the activist motives that I think they're pure and they're, they're coming from a good place. But hearing Sean Baker speak and a few others and, you know, hearing Jordan Peterson go on a carnival diet, his daughter, and you're like, hang on a minute, like, are these guys smoking something? Or is there something behind this fairly uh, extreme concept? So I, I love the fact that you're kind of butting against the vegan movement not to knock anyone down, but just to have a counter argument because it is a very strong voice in uh, in the food industry right now. I, I like the fact this carnival movement has emerged. I don't know where it's going to go over the next 10 years, but I think there's, there's definitely merit for us to think about uh, meat and its value versus meat and its uh, detriment, which I think is the messaging we've been given over the last few decades. And I quite like the fact that you're less dogmatic you're less emotional, and you're more focused on human performance. So I'm hoping that's what we're going to cover today. If it's okay with you, Paul, here's, here's the, the flow. Tell me if this works. One, I'd love for you to kind of lay down some of your science arguments and kind of evolutionary kind of hypothesis that kind of puts the carnivore diet on the map for you and why you're a proponent of it. And maybe let's get into some of the, you know, the key anecdotes or data that kind of drives that decision. Instead of going full tilt, full geeking out, which I'd love to, because I am a geek, but with the knowing that you've had some fantastic podcasts recorded over the last couple of months, maybe in the show notes, we can point someone to a deep, deep dive discussion. And I'm sure you've got a couple to offer. But we'll cut short of just going super, super geek with the benefit of I'd love to get into more practical application of this pro meat argument for the masses you know how how can the everyday person engage with the carnivore diet because it's expensive to buy meat there's a sustainability argument and it's a very extreme divergence from people's current diet so is there a way to do it which is maybe a little bit more flexible and then lastly to make it real my wife has been compelled after listening to you and Sean to try the carnivore diet She's a week and a half in, so I might find some anecdotes too and answer some of her uh, burning questions. Does that feel good for you? Sounds great to me. Cool, man. Cool. Well, with, without further ado then, like, where, where do you want to start with kind of laying down some of the foundations behind your thinking on the carnival diet? Well, I think that probably the thing I should lead with is that when I first heard about it, I thought it was crazy too. <laughs> I think most people, when they hear about this concept just kind of have that reflex reaction. Like, that's crazy. But the amazing thing about it, and one of the things about it that I think is so cool is that it's almost a process of self-discovery and self-examination around all of our conditioning around plants. 
I'm at the end of my residency, you know, in the, in the U.S. we do four years of medical school. We do four years of residency. Before that, I was a physician assistant in cardiology. So I've been in medicine for probably more than 12 years now. And I've been interested in functional medicine for at least pr pretty much the majority of that time. So 11 or 12 years, I've been sort of interested in functional medicine, which is just a word that means root cause medicine. It's a movement here that's, I, I'm sure it's across you know, countries now and you guys have it there, but it's, it basically is just root cause medicine, looking at labs and, you know, things like that. And, but even within that community, there's this sort of undercurrent, the, the dogma, for lack of a better word, really the, the fabric of the movement is based on the fact that there are all of these valuable nutrients and plants and that, I mean, there are even some very high profile people, Terry Walls, people like this, who, whose protocols involve basically just getting as many vegetables as you can. And there's this kind of subtle idea that, that health is directly connected to the amount of vegetables you eat, whether it's Mark Hyman. And I respect all these practitioners, but it's been a very, uh, it's been a very eye-opening paradigm shift for me to imagine like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying, it, you know, when I first heard about the carnivore diet, the idea was, wait a minute, you don't want to eat all those plants. You just need to eat animals. And that just, that flies in the face of everyone else out there, which is why it's such a fun thing. You know, if you talk to Mark Hyman, talk to David Perlmutter, talk to Terry Walls, you know, the not subtle message is the more vegetables you eat, the healthier you'll get. So what a disruptive concept. What a completely counterintuitive, counterconditioning concept to say no. Vegetables are probably the problem. That that just that blew me away when I first heard of it. But the more I thought about it, and the more I dug into it, it, it was just such a neat thing, and it was such a, such a, a an awakening, for lack of a better word. And so, if people hear the concept and they just think that's crazy, that was my reaction too. And now I'm now it's what I do every day, and that's what I think about all the time. And so, what I'll kind of walk people through is sort of my learning about it and my discovery of of the ideas. And so. When people say carnivore diet, people mean different things. You know, my impression of what we should be doing for a carnivore diet is a little different than Sean's. But I think of it as like a nose to tail thing. You know, we'll probably say meat, eating meat in this podcast a few times. But if people look at my social media or they look at my message, the, the idea that comes through, and we can dig into this in more detail later, is that, you know, our ancestors would have eaten animals. They would have eaten them nose to tail. They would not have just eaten the muscle meat. It's not just steaks. You know, the animal has a liver and it has a gallbladder and it has a heart and it has a brain, it has bone marrow, et cetera. So the, the beginnings of the idea, I think for me, were based on what I saw. And I think that many people would find benefit in, in looking at that first before we dig into the, sort of the theory of it. If you look at the community of people who are doing the carnivore diet, it's pretty incredible what's happening. And I think the proof is in the pudding. As a physician, I'd spent 12 years, you know, well, eight, four years in medical school, four years in residency now, and then four years prior to that as a PA, treating patients. And what I saw was that people were not getting better. And that to me was the, the greatest disappointment. And I was basically at a point that I was considering even leaving medicine, not even continuing on my medical journey after residency or just completely going in a different direction if I couldn't understand what was at the root of chronic illness. And functional medicine aims to understand that. But um, from what I had seen, many of the interventions in functional medicine were not as effective as I had hoped they would be. Some of the interventions were effective, but it wasn't really moving the needle in the way that I had hoped. And, you know, about a year ago when I had heard about the carnivore diet, it really sparked something in me. It was just this idea that 
I saw people with autoimmune disease that was previously recalcitrant or untreatable getting better in ways that I had never seen before. And this is people like Michaela Peterson and Jordan Peterson and people on the carnivore forums. There's a web website, meatheals.com, where there are literally hundreds of people who submit their own stories. And incidentally, now that I've been in the movement for, you know, almost a year, I get, I get people sending me messages every day, you know, like they didn't improve my acne it improved my rheumatoid arthritis and improved my ulcerative colitis and improved my Crohn's. Well, that to a physician, that is paradigm shifting because those are diseases that we are told will never get better. And if you ask a gastroenterologist, if you ask people in the space, most of them will say there is no connection between food and inflammatory bowel disease. There is no connection between food and rheumatologic disease or autoimmune disease, whether it's rheumatoid arthritis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, psychiatry and mental health. First of all, there's really not an understanding that those conditions are, are mostly autoimmune, which I would argue for strongly that the psychiatry world needs a paradigm shift. And secondly, there's also a misunderstanding or a blindness to the idea that food is incredibly important to shift how we uh, are reacting to our environment from a mental perspective. There is brain inflammation going on in psychiatric disease. So for me, what I was starting to see in medicine was this idea that most chronic disease is autoimmune, which is a pretty radical statement, but I think that it's true. Most chronic disease is autoimmune, and so what we need is to understand what is causing autoimmunity. So when I heard about the carnivore diet and I saw that people with autoimmune disease were getting better, I was determined to understand what was going on. And so that would be the first thing I would recommend to people. If they're skeptical, if it sounds crazy, look at what people are experiencing on the diet. And that, I think, will surprise people. And then the next step is to kind of dive into the theory and say, okay, once I saw that and I was thoroughly impressed, I thought either hundreds of people are independently making this up or there is something here that needs to be studied. There is an idea here that needs to be studied. And that was sort of my deep dive, the beginning of my dive into why would this work? And um, it's been an incredible journey. And I'm happy to dive into that if you'd like. Yeah. So I've, I've heard much of your argument, but our audience hasn't necessarily. Um, without getting into the real nitty gritty, you know, all the compounds and all the various processes in play. Yeah, call out your kind of high levels, because I know you've got a piece around the evolutionary mismatch, you've got something around plant pesticides. I'd love to hit those if, if nothing else. Yeah, so at a basic level, the idea is that I think if we just back up and people think, where do humans get their nutrition? What do we need to be optimal humans? I mean, nutrition is a fascinating thing to me. I think throughout my medical career, I've always thought nutrition was incredible. And I, it's very sad to me that it's not a bigger part of the curriculum in medical schools because for me, nutrition, nutritional biochemistry is the centerpiece of who we are as humans. And I think it was even Nietzsche or someone who said, you know, to understand what a human needs to eat is, is such an interesting question. That is the human user manual. That's at least the first chapter of the human user manual that we've lost along the way. You know, mm -hmm. you buy a car, it comes with a user manual. Well, humans have a user manual, but it, it, we lost it. You know, like sometime in our history, and I can talk a little bit about the evolutionary evidence, but we lost the user manual. So all of us are kind of running around now and some of us are sick and some of us just want to optimize athletic performance. But the underlying question for everyone is like, 
what the heck am I supposed to eat? You know, if I want to get rid of this arthritis or I want to get rid of this, you know, Sjogren's or lupus, or I want to get rid of this Crohn's disease or for, for people that are athletes, what the heck am I supposed to eat? If I want to, if I'm going to kick the most butt, you know, if I want to run the fastest or think the most clearly or perform the best in the gym or just, you know, be good for my family and be the most emotionally stable and resilient. Like how do I become the best version of myself? And that's in the user manual. That's somewhere. There is a diet. There is a, there is an instruction manual, but we kind of lost it. And so it's this interesting concept that if we look at what we know about nutrition, we know a lot. If you look at what humans need to function optimally, and this assumes, you know, the, the sort of caveat, the asterisk at the top is that we probably don't know everything about human nutrition, but we know a heck of a lot. And if you look at that, that body of knowledge, and you look at what humans need to function optimally, all the minerals, all the vitamins, all the cofactors, the, 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 I think the first sort of eye-opening thing that I realized as I was digging into this was that every single one of those is found in animals when you eat an animal nose to tail. And they're found in the most highly bioavailable forms. So I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is crazy. Like, are you telling, as I'm sort of, this is like my internal conversation, you know, I'm not actually talking to someone. Like, did I, is it really true that humans can get every single thing that they need to function optimally in an animal? And, and as far as I could tell, every nutritional deep dive, I thought, yeah, you can. And I broke it down. You get this piece of the, you get this piece of the equation here. You get this piece of the equation here. So as much as I looked, there was nothing in plants that was unique or um, you know, uh, that was, that was something we couldn't get in animals or that had, that had a special value. And this is kind of the meat of the discussion because people might be saying, what about vitamin C and what about polyphenols? And we can dig into that. But at a basic level, that is the premise that animal foods contain all of the nutrients that humans need to function optimally. Number one, in the most bioavailable forms, number two, in the right ratios, which is pretty incredible sort of evolutionary elegance, number three, and number four, without any of the toxins found in plants. So that's kind of my postulate. And that is what I discovered as I was digging into this. And, you know, there's the plant toxin piece, which we can talk about. There's the humans, everything you can get. You can get everything you need from plants. Uh, excuse me. You can get everything you need from animals it is the first piece. And then the optimal bioavailability. So it's this crazy concept. Of like, I just sort of had this epiphany. Like, why are we eating plants if we don't need them? And for some people, in the best case scenario, plants are probably net neutral. But the, the, the corollary hypothesis becomes, could plants be causing autoimmunity or chronic inflammation, those are basically synonyms, in, in susceptible people? And I think they may be because of all the plant toxins. So the way that I've formulated it is that you know, humans are facultative carnivores, which I believe is a concept at first advanced by Amber O'Hearn, but I would agree with her that, that humans are probably facultative carnivores. And what I mean by that is that throughout our evolution, I think there's strong evidence that humans have eaten mostly animals and that eating a lot of animals made us human and shaped our development in very strong ways. During times of scarcity, we're probably adapted to eat plants, but at best, they're survival food. And if we look at what happens when people eat only survival food, I think it's pretty clear that that is a recipe for long-term disaster in terms of health, which is something like a vegan diet, for instance, you know? And uh, yeah, so it's just, as you start to kind of like look into that and focus the microscope, this kind of stuff comes into, into, into perspective. And I hope that that overline, that outline will give people a little bit of context there. Just let's double click into that kind of evolutionary perspective that you believe to be true. So this concept that, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, 
um, prior to the agricultural re re revolution, even hundreds of thousands of years ago, we would have dom uh, we would have, our dominant part of our diet would have been to hunt uh, and eat animal products, animal uh, animals. Is is that fair to say? I mean, because if we think about uh, the concept of being a hunter gatherer, you know, part of that that message is to suggest that we were we gathering food as well. We were we were picking berries off uh, off of trees or you know, eating fruit or having some vegetables and leaves and is it how how do you counter that because we have been called hunter gatherers for uh, as long as people can remember uh, and that's definitely at least the conditioning we hear about our kind of uh, ancestral lineage do you want to kind of dig into that a little bit more yeah i think it's a fascinating story i I tell you what, I wish I had a time machine. I think it would be so fascinating. I would, <laughs> I would just go back and like hang under a rock and watch a T Rex, and then and then flip forward. You know, so we think about the the timeline of human evolution and, and pre human evolution. You know, dinosaurs hundreds of millions of years ago. Humans pre humans uh, four to six million years ago, depending on what we're calling human. The first named Homo genus is Homo habilis. Homo erectus, well, probably Homo habilis, outdated Homo erectus, about 3 million years ago. So dinosaurs way back, pre-humans, probably 3 million years ago, even prior to Homo erectus and Homo habilis was Australopithecus. But it looks like the primates, you know, chimpanzees, we that's probably our common ancestors, chimpanzee, bonobo, something like that. Some of those became Australopithecus, and then probably early on, Australopithecus, uh, some Australopithecus, you know, lineage went into the Homo genus. And so... I think that most people, you know, there are all these sort of anthropologic arguments, which are just arguments. It's just hypothesis. But what we see is we see a couple of things which are quite fascinating. The biggest things we can look at in the fossil record is the way that our bodies changed. And you can see changes in the jaw structure. You can see changes in the digestive structure. And you can see the brain having this sudden huge explosion in size. And they all kind of give uh, strength to this notion that when we moved out of the trees, because I think it's pretty clear that our primate ancestors were eating a lot of, a lot of vegetable matter, something happened. Something happened to us that changed the way we were as, as animals, as organisms. We became different. We became more upright. We got much bigger brains, and our digestive system changed radically. And so there's this really interesting, what you might call triad of historical paleo you know, uh, anthropology from 2.5 million years ago, we, where we see the emergence of stone tools, we see the brain start to get bigger, and we see a lot of evidence that humans were hunting more animals. And so I think that, again, admittedly, this is all theory because we don't have the time machine and we can argue about it endlessly. But there's a pretty compelling idea, a pretty compelling hypothesis that it was our development of stone tools and our sudden increase in the ability to scavenge and eat animals that made us into humans, that provided us with a new set of nutrients that changed who we are. And so that is really one of the postulates or one of the, you know, one of the, the things that I would suggest to people that eating animals made us human and has always been a part of our history. And I can talk a little bit more about some very compelling evidence from that for that that comes from about 70 to 80,000 years ago. But if we're still like 3 million years ago to 2 million years ago, the changes that happened in humans were, were incredible. Our brain 
radically expanded in size from 600 cc's to 1,000 cc's and then up to a, a peak of about 1,500 cc's, so 1,500 milliliters in size. I mean, you know, you look at chimps, they're about 300 cc's, gorillas, 600 cc's, but our human brain just exploded in size. And with the explosion in size of the human brain can increase neural connections, increase complexity, the neocortex, which is sort of that outside gray matter where we're doing all of this processing. It was really what made us into these incredibly sentient beings and changed who we are. And that there's a, there's very strong evidence that that had to do with the availability of nutrient dense foods and animal fats, specifically things like DHA or docosahexaenoic acid, which allowed our brains to basically just grow very rapidly over the course of a million years. And then if you look at other things, the, the, the whole story is kind of consistent. We suddenly went from chimps that have a stomach acidity of four or five or six to very acidic stomachs, uh, 1.5 as a pH. And if we're measuring pH, the lower pH is more acidic. So that, that to me, I think is one of the most telling factors. We compare our pH to other animals. There's no herbivore on the planet that has a pH of 1.5 and really omnivores or omnivorous animals don't need a pH of 1.5. But such a low pH would suggest that, you know, we were eating animals. We were eating either dead or rotting things. We needed a strong pH, a very acidic stomach to detoxify, to protect us from bacteria and to digest the meat. But so we look very different than a chimp in our digestive system. We look much more like a dog or a wolf. Um, and, and we look much more like carnivores. The size of our gut changed radically. The stomach is about the same in terms of relative percentages, but basically what you had was a flip-flop in the relative amounts of the colon and the small intestine, meaning that the small intestine of a chimp is very small and the colon takes up the majority of their digestive tract. Well, in a human, it's absolutely the reverse. You know, our small intestine got much bigger and our colon got much smaller, which is really, I mean, we know from a medical perspective, that has to do with what you do in the small intestine versus what you do in the colon. Well, in the colon, you're going to ferment things and you're going to, you're basically, that's what the chimps used and they take all this fiber, you ferment the fiber in the colon, you make short chain fatty acids and you turn carbohydrates into fat. So if you look at the way a chimp works, they're actually eating a high fat diet. They're just eating carbohydrates at the mouth, gets turned into fat in the colon and then they're getting a lot of, a lot of fat out of their colon. Well, humans flipped it. So we started we probably, because we were eating animals or had access to animals, we got fat right up front. We got all the animal fat right up front. And if you want to absorb animal fat and you want to absorb micronutrients, you need a big small intestine because that's where all that happens. The digestion of fat happens in the stomach, but the absorption of fat happens in the small intestine. You make chylomicrons, et cetera. So basically our gut went from something that looked like in the chimps and the apes, something that was going to digest a bunch of fiber and make short chain fatty acids there to something that was going to have preformed uh, protein or, or preformed uh, fats. And so the source of our nutrition completely shifted. We got this huge small intestine to absorb all the fats that we were probably taking in from animals. So there's this, this strong sort of coherent story that we changed. And I mean, the, the, the fact that we changed is not questioned, but the idea is like develop stone tools. Hey, look, our brains got bigger, our guts changed, our acidity changed. And it's this crazy idea. Like, we were probably eating animals and the eating of the animals was probably what, what shaped that and what made us human. If we look at their human form, the skeletal structure, there's all sorts of things that also contributed to that. We suddenly developed a, a shoulder which can throw things. We're the only animal, animal on the planet that I'm aware of that can throw something enough to kill another animal, you know? Like to be so accurate that you can throw a 100 mile per hour fastball or you can throw a rock and hit something in the head. 
or a spear. I mean, that's the shoulder-shaped human evolution. So there's all of this stuff that kind of says, hey, there was something going on here, and it probably was the fact that we were eating animals. Some of the most compelling data comes from nitrogen studies. And now we're fast forwarding through Homo erectus. You know, Homo erectus lived for about 1.8 million years. Uh, they went extinct. Um, but uh, and Homo sapiens came on the scene, you know, about 500,000 years ago. And if we fast forward to about 80,000 years ago, looking at nitrogen levels in the collagen of Neanderthal and early Homo sapiens living in Europe, what we find is that the nitrogen levels in those bones were so high that they were higher than other known carnivores at the time. Well, what does that mean? Well, when we eat animal products, we bioaccumulate nitrogen. It's a D15 nitrogen. There's a radioisotope that we can use. Eating animals, which are higher in nitrogen because they're at a higher trophic level, causes us to accumulate more nitrogen. So one of the things that anthropologists, paleoanthropologists can do is look at the amount of nitrogen in the bone structure of an animal to see what it was eating. And so they look at things like hyenas, which live in caves, and they say, okay, they have this amount of nitrogen in their bones. And then they looked at Neanderthals and humans, and we had even more. So hyenas are completely carnivorous. And so we had even more than known carnivores, suggesting that we were eating an almost entirely carnivorous diet and that we were eating even bigger animals, which would make sense because there's all these sort of interesting uh, rabbit holes to go down about the extinction of megafauna and um, you know humans really hunting fat. But the nitrogen studies, and there are multiple studies like this now that have been published in the last few months, really do suggest that humans were probably eating a lot of animals, a heck of a lot of animals, like the majority of our diet was animals. So I think that throughout human evolution to say that we never ate a plant would be ludicrous. But kind of going back to the first sort of context that I created, I think it's pretty clear that our ancestors were eating a lot of meat. And I would suggest the hypothesis regarding that would be that meat and animals we're probably favored as the ideal food and we would eat plants during times of starvation. We can't always be these amazing hunters. We can't always get a woolly mammoth. So if we can't get a woolly mammoth or, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to hunt a saber-toothed tiger. That's just like the stuff of comic books. But, uh, you know, if we can't get a woolly mammoth or a deer or a hippo or something, a large animal, we're, we're going to be like, oh, we're, we're, we're going to get some plants for a while. But uh, the animals are clearly, uh, were probably the, the preferred food. And the reason I would say that statement is based on what we see from current indigenous tribes. You know, if you look at the work of Willemar Stephenson, like working with the Inuit, or you look at tribes in Africa, there's this really consistent idea that animals are quote unquote real food and plants are just kind of this survival food. And that's been repeated to explorers, you know, at the turn of the century and the early 1900s over and over, whether it's the Maasai or the Inuit or any of these sort of uh, cultures throughout the world that are eating animals, they say, well, we only eat plants when we don't have real food. So there's this idea like our ancestors and people that are living the hunter you know, hunter, big letters, small letters, gatherer lifestyle um, would always favor the animal food over the plants. And it makes sense because why wouldn't you? It's the most highly bioavailable nutrients. It has everything you need. Well, if you're starving or you can't get an animal or it's winter or there's something that changes in the environment, then you would go to get plants most likely. So it's kind of this really interesting idea to think like, where have we come from? And, and that can inform where we are today, but that's sort of the historical perspective. So have you read Sapiens? I'm, I'm sure you have. By, yeah, yeah. By Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's putting out three books. I'm on the second and so far fascinated by both of them. Uh, I may get my anecdote from, from this book slightly wrong, but I think he said the agricultural revolution started 70 odd thousand years ago. 
So 70 odd thousand years ago, we, we found a way to, you know, harvest wheat predominantly and find a way to um, feed the masses as opposed to small tribes feeding themselves. We found a way to uh, farm and feed more people. And that kind of gave way to what we see today, which is, you know, nations and governments and big food feeding thousands upon millions of people. So if that is the case, and his kind of positioning, and uh, I may get this slightly wrong, but his position is, is to suggest that we ate quite a lot of veg or, or we, we ate a lot of um, plant-based agriculture for much of our existence. And he, he also went on to say that wheat domesticated humans. So we were, we were typically tribal, moving around, we quite transient, never really stayed in one place for too long. We were hunting for animals, etc., looking for, you know, pastures which could, we, could, we could feed from. And as soon as we found the ability to effectively plow and uh, harvest wheat, we, we stayed with the wheat. So he, he hypothesizes that wheat domesticate the human and kept us in, you know, homes that kept us in one place forever or for a long time. That's 70,000 years ago. I know evolution moves very slowly, but is there not argument, a counter argument to yours to say, through 70,000 years of um, agriculture, plant-based agriculture, that we've adapted sufficiently to handle what we're now hopefully going to discuss, which is some of the plant pesticides. Guys, a quick post-production interrupt. I was wrong in saying that the agricultural revolution came about 70,000 years ago. That is wrong, and apologies for that. Is It is actually 12,000 years ago, and I've made sure I've double-checked my stats. So 12,000 years ago, the start of the agricultural revolution. Let's get back to the show. You know, I've, I've, I'd, I'd be curious to check that number. I think that it's highly debated when actual agriculture began. You know, um, this is kind of similar to Jared Diamond's concept. You know, the worst mistake in human history. He's written Gun Germs and Steel and Collapse and the Third Chimpanzee. And I, I've seen it more like twenty to fifteen thousand years ago for agriculture. But I, I would be curious. Eighty thousand years ago or seventy thousand years ago sounds like quite a long time for me. But here's the the caveat. Here's what's interesting about that for me is that just the way that it all is built, right? When humans are hunting and gathering, we're sort of part of this ecosystem. And if we do something wrong, we're going to feel it. Meaning that if we overhunt the buffalo, we're going to go extinct, right? And there is a real selective natural, so there's a real selective pressure there from us. I've always found it interesting that once we do agriculture, it's, it almost short circuits natural selection. We're almost not operating in a Darwinian evolution anymore because there's no, there's no selection for highly advantageous genes because what we have found or what we've seen is that, you know, it, people pass on their genes, all that evolution, the way it works we are just built to be 18 or 19 years old. We're only trying to get to sexual maturity and then your genes get passed on, right? Well, you can, I mean, as we know from our society today, you can eat McDonald's for your whole life and get to sexual maturity and pass on your genes. So the, the fact that the idea is that there is no selective pressure anymore there. You know, once we create an agricultural society, the idea that that humans could adapt in any way to plants, I think is kind of flawed because 
there's no selective pressure there. We know that humans can almost eat cardboard for 16 years. Like you can become so micronutrient deficient for the first 16 years of your life and you can still pass on your genes. And then your ancestors have these genes. There's just no selective pressures there. So it's a compelling argument. I've heard people say that, like, wouldn't we have evolved to eat the plants? And I would say, you know, in my opinion, no. Because if we made it at the age of 45, then maybe, right? Because you can, but what we start to see for people is that most people, and we're almost like salmon, you know, we, we go upstream and we spawn and then we start to die. And I think a lot of people will see this in their lives. Like once they've reached sexual maturity and humans have a long period of sexual maturity uh, built into sort of our evolutionary clock. Once we've done that, you know, as we start to get into the twilight of our sexual maturity and it's different for men and women, that's when a lot of people start to see these chronic conditions actually occur. And what, what we're dealing with here is how to, how to really, the best, the best way to assess optimal health to me seems like, look at 40 year olds, look at 45 year olds. I think a lot of people conflate youth with health. You know, we see these guys in the NFL and the NBA, they're eating absolute garbage from any perspective. If you're plant-based, if you're a carnivore, if you're an omnivore, if you're paleo, any of those people would look at the people, a lot of these athletes and say, they're eating McDonald's. They're eating absolute junk. They're eating like chicken McNuggets. Like there's no micronutrients there, but they're still the pinnacle of their sport, right? So youth should not be conflated with health, in my opinion. And I think that what we really need to look at is what, on an individual level, what we see is people who are having autoimmune disease and chronic stuff. Sometimes that'll show up when people are very young, like it did in the case of Michaela Peterson. But for a lot of people, it doesn't set in until 30, 40. And that's where we actually start to see the effects of diet. But what's happened? Most people have already passed on their genes. So we don't know. Somebody could be 30, 40 years old, develop an autoimmune disease. Well, they're clearly not adapted to whatever they're doing, or there's something that's triggering that. But they're, and the, but to say like, oh, they're, you know, they've already passed on their genetics to their children, right? Do you, do you see what I'm saying here? Like, once we'd started agriculture, whether it was 70 or 15,000 years ago, all the selective pressures are off, because we, for better or for worse, we figured out a way to get everybody enough calories and the minimal amount of micronutrients to get them to reductive, reproductive health, and then. Some people might have been more adapted to plants. I mean, I think we definitely see that in our society that some people seem to be able to tolerate plants better than others. My, my postulate would be that animal foods are the optimal food for all people and that the more animal foods you eat, the better you're going to do. But some people are more genetically gifted at baseline and can handle more plant foods. They can handle more of the survival food. But what we're seeing now is that you know, some people are very sensitive to some foods and some people are not, but there's really no pressure to select that because by the time most people see that, they've already passed on their, they've already passed it on to their offspring. So the people who are sensitive to plants are not getting, they're, they're not having less reproductive health. Does that make sense? Because they're already past the reproductive years. Oh, I know, I completely get that. And, you know, I've, I've often wondered, you know, you know, we, we all ask like, you know, why? <laughs> what's life about? You know, what's the bigger purpose? And if you look just from evolutionary an evolutionary perspective, it's the reproduction and passing on of our genes. We do that yeah. typically fairly young. Uh, and then we've got this long tail of a life thereafter. And, you know, what do you do with it? <laughs> um, now there's, you know. Podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Deal with your autoimmune conditions. Um, <laughs> um, but I think there's this idea of the, you know, the elder and, and the value the elder brings to future generations. But that's not about gene, passing on genes. That's about enabling the young to do the same. So, from a purely genetic and passing on your genes perspective, what you've just said makes perfect sense. And if we're resilient when we're young, which we absolutely are, you know, all my health conditions only started to appear in my mid-30s. I think we've got we've got this uh, honeymoon period up until, you know, 30. 
before things start to catch up with us, generally speaking. Um, and if the ship has already sailed, I, your genes have already spawned and moved on. Uh, I can understand that, you know, the, the burden we carry for the next 60 years doesn't really have an impact on our future generations, albeit if you reproduce later, then I guess you could be providing perhaps some defective genes. But we won't go down that rabbit hole anymore because I think I've already pushed us far down there than, uh, than we should. So why don't we talk about, um, let's get get into this kind of idea that plants are perhaps toxic. Like, How are you arriving at that conclusion? Well, I think this is one of the most interesting pieces of the whole equation. And you know, we always go back to the evolutionary piece. It's so fascinating. I mean, plants outdate humans by hundreds of millions of years. You know, mm -hmm. plants were around in the dinosaurs. I mean, they were brontosaurus, brontosauri. <laughs> What's plural of brontosaurus? Brontosauruses. Who knows? <laughs> they were they were brontosauri rumbling around. You know, and they were stegosaurus, stegosauri rumbling around eating plants. And so, animals and plants have co-evolved for you know the entirety of the ecosystems creation or the ecosystems, you know, arrival on the face of the earth. But the, the crazy thing is this, animals are mobile and animals have defense mechanisms. They have teeth. The stegosaurus had st scales, you know, those big things in its back that made him so cool. A brontosaurus has a huge tail, you know, a tyrannosaurus is the baddest guy out there. You know, nobody's going to eat a tyrannosaurus. And, you know, if you think about more recent animals that we're familiar with, like a hippopotamus or a deer can run away or an antelope or a zebra, animals have defense mechanisms of mobility and teeth and claws. And what does a plant have? Not much. Unless, I mean, this is why there was selective pressure on plants to evolve anti-nutrients and toxins. That's what the plant has. The plants evolve toxins. And people aren't really familiar with this, but there are a variety of plant toxins that plants have evolved. I mean, there would be no plants on the face of the earth right now. And basically all of life would have died off because of the interconnections, right? There, are, We need herbivores, we need carnivores, but there would be no plants on the earth right now if any animal could just go up to any plant and eat it ad libitum, you know, without any fear or any consequence. If you look at sheep or lambs or other ruminants in our present day, what you'll see is that they don't go into a field and just eat a bunch of grass down to the roots. You know, they, if they're in a field of grass, they're going to eat a little bit of one plant, move on to a little bit of another and a little bit of another. And the clear thing that they're doing there and the scientists, the agricultural scientists have shown this quite elegantly is that they, they are realizing, and this is sort of their evolutionary blueprint and they they know their user manual. We don't know ours that if they eat more than a certain amount of a plant, they're gonna get nauseous. And that's probably the defense mechanism they have. The scientists see that when they give the lamb or they give the cow an anti-nausea medication, it will overeat on one thing and usually get sick. So the, the animals have this nausea, this nausea signal. They say, oh, I've eaten enough of that plant. I gotta move on to the next one. They realize what humans have forgotten, that every plant has a defense mechanism. And that if they eat too much of a plant, they're gonna get sick. Well, they've co-evolved with plants for their whole evolution, and they're clearly herbivores. And so they have the ability to kind of detoxify all of these plants. But I would argue that when we moved out of the trees, we became humans, we were eating mostly animals. We did not evolve with plants in the same way. We have just evolved with plants as survival foods. And we probably didn't evolve the ability to detoxify those those things. And that's what we see if we look at medicine and the way that human physiology actually works. We don't really have a good system. We have a very minimal system, right? Because they're, if we accept the hypothesis or the postulate, they're survival foods. We have about 
you know, we have like a really rinky-dink system for detoxifying them, but we can get it overloaded very quickly. And as I've suggested clinically, it would seem that some people are much more sensitive to those plant toxins than others. And so what plant toxins am I talking about? If you look at plants, there are a variety. There are different groups. There are plant pesticides, which are not the things we spray on plants, although those are a big deal too. But plants actually make pesticides. And the majority of the quote unquote pesticides that people eat on a daily basis are from plants. They are made by the plants. There's a great paper I've referenced in the past by Bruce Ames called Dietary Pesticides, 99.99% all natural. I'll let people look at that if they're interested. But you know, on the second page of that article, there's they have a little chart, 44 natural pesticides occurring in cabbage, 44. And that's just the 44 they've characterized. So that's just cabbage has 44 compounds that have been shown to be pesticides to discourage either insect or animal animals eating cabbage. Cabbage is in the brassica family. The whole there's a whole group in there that's called isothiocyanates, which includes things like glucoraphanin, a precursor for sulforaphane. So without getting into the weeds there. I'll just mention that this is sort of the, the most interesting piece of it for me because many people would say, oh, isothiocyanates are good for people. And I would say, ah, I think we've gotten that all wrong. They're clearly bad for people. And if you look at the way they interact with the human body, they're clearly a net negative. And I would say, you know, we can talk about the polyphenols because I think it's the most sort of confusing piece of the whole equation for people. But if we look at plant compounds like polyphenols, Plants are not making these to benefit humans. They're making these either for pigments or to deter animals from eating them. And within the supplement industry, within the health industry, we have sort of uh, mistakenly characterized these polyphenols as beneficial by just being myopic and looking at the one part of the human body where they might do something good. But if we expand our frame and we look at and we study these molecules throughout the body, curcumin is another great example. Sulforaphane so is technically not a polyphenol, but it illustrates the point, like curcumin is a polyphenol. You know, if we're looking at curcumin, for instance, people say, oh, it does all these great things. And you say, actually, it doesn't. You know, if you look at the 120 randomized controlled trials with curcumin, not a single one has shown any benefit. And then if you expand the lens and you say, could it be doing bad things? Yes, it's absolutely doing bad things. There are very well done studies to show that curcumin has very many negative effects in the human body. But the supplement industry won't tell you that, right? They won't tell you about how it's going to inhibit this potassium channel called the Herg channel, or how it's been shown to affect topoisomerase and DNA repair, or how curcumin has been shown to increase DNA breaks. And we shouldn't be surprised, you know? This is another concept that I sort of talked about, the idea that these plant compounds are made for the plants. Plants are not on the earth to feed animals. They can sometimes exist symbiotically or with some sort of like mutual agreement, sort of, but there's always this war going on. They didn't make those things for us. They made those compounds for them. And many times they made those compounds to discourage animals from eating them. And if we look at the whole animal, we see that they're actually causing problems for humans in other places. So forafane, I'll just mention real quickly so that people understand that example. So forafane is touted as being this wonderful thing. It comes from glucoraphanin. There's an enzyme myrosinase that has to make the sulforaphane out of the glucoraphanin. Sulforaphane is so oxidatively reactive that it can't exist in the broccoli or kale or any of the brassica plants. It's in all these brassica vegetables. So that means that sulforaphane, when it's made by, by, by the combination of the enzyme myrosinase and glucoraphanin, creates this very oxidatively reactive molecule. It really wants to move electrons around. It wants to lose electrons and create free radicals. And we see that in the human body. But nobody's ever told this, right? Nobody's ever told, hey, so forafane will actually make free radicals in your body. We're just told, hey, it's good for you. But if you look at it, 
the reason sulforaphane is good for you, and this is the part where the supplement industry wants to focus, is because it triggers our antioxidant defense mechanisms because it's a pro-oxidant. And at a, at a very small level, that's beneficial because you get more glutathione, which is this, uh, this you know, endogenous antioxidant. But again, if we expand the frame and we look at it, we see, wait a minute, it's doing that one thing, which is not unique to sulforaphane. We can achieve optimal antioxidant status and get plenty of glutathione with just exercise or cold stress or heat stress. We don't need sulforaphane to make glutathione, but it's also causing oxidation of fragile molecules like omega-3s and omega-6 fatty acids into molecules like 4-HNE and acrolein. And then at the level of the thyroid, it's inhibiting it's competing with uh, iodine absorption at the level of thyroid. And I mean, sulforaphane or isothiocyanates are the biggest cause of endemic goiter throughout the world, but we never see it in the United States because we don't get endemic goiter. But if you look throughout the world at these people with these huge necks, that's from goitrogenic foods. That's from foods that are just like brassicates that have these isothiocyanate molecules in them that compete with iodine absorption at the level of the thyroid. So clearly, this molecule is not a gift to humans. It's not supposed to be eaten by humans. The plant is saying, hey, if you eat me, I'm going to mess with your thyroid and I'm going to mess with these fatty acids and you're going to figure this out. And if you just eat me without restraint, you're going to get so much thyroid you know, issues that you're not even going to be able to reproduce and you're going to feel horrible. So that's the issue here is that these plant compounds are kind of insidious and we're not told about them. So that's the idea. There are multiple other types of plant compounds. Those are just the plant pesticides. Maybe um, maybe, maybe it, just to, to um, just clarify one thing. You spoke about polyphenols. You spoke about antioxidant properties. But people hear the word antioxidants frequently and often and how we should get lots of those lots of free radicals, lots of oxidative stress throughout our lives, getting on planes, doing the things that we do, stress. And therefore, we want to mop up those free radicals by having some antioxidants. And we can find a lot of those in you know, foods high in polyphenols, whether it's red wine, or you have some resveratrol tablets, or you have some curcumin, turmeric, all those kind of things. Are you saying that that's not correct? That's exactly what I'm saying. That if that, that is sort of a, that's a fairy tale sort of given to us by the supplement industry. Um, curcumin, there are some very interesting papers about curcumin. One of them is called the dark side of curcumin. The other one is called the medicinal chemistry of curcumin. What you'll see in the randomized controlled trials with curcumin as an example is that it doesn't do any of that. Curcumin has never been shown to be beneficial to humans in randomized controlled trials. Resveratrol is another great example, failed miserably in human trials. No benefit to resveratrol. And then if you look at the data with resveratrol, just like I'm saying here, it's a foreign molecule. It's not from our operating system. It's been shown to negatively affect hormonal balance. It's been shown to trigger autoimmunity, but we never hear about this. You know, a lot of, we have to be careful. Are we looking at rodent studies? Like are people, pe people sometimes see these rodent studies and they're like, oh, this is an incredible molecule. You know, David Sinclair was on Joe Rogan talking about resveratrol. It's failed miserably in human trials. And why shouldn't it, right? It's not a human molecule. It's not but even in our same operating system. We do it's talk just about a foreign molecule. We do talk about this hormetic response, right? This idea that okay, it is a toxin. Uh, I, th I think any kind of anyone having this discussion would say, "Yep, this stuff is a toxin to our body, but we can tolerate the toxin uh, as long as it doesn't push us over a threshold within one sitting. We have a rebound effect or hormetic response where we end up being, you know, in eustress. We start creating." A benefit and we kind of amp up our tolerance to that toxin and we you know mop up some free radicals that at least was has been my education informally informally to suggest that's what these uh, antioxidants do again i'm trying to understand th that hormetic d d discussion i mean there's, there, there's some legitimacy in that isn't there 
This is so fascinating, Steve. This is totally going to blow your mind. Like, this is so fascinating. This is the really the misunderstanding, right? There is a shred of legitimacy there, but let me let me really paint the whole picture here, okay? So the way that things generally work as hormetics is they are oxidative stressors. Like I said, sulforaphane, which is technically not a polyphenolic molecule, but the reason it's a hormetic stressor is because it's an oxidant. It's a pro-oxidant, right? It turns on the NRF2 pathway. It's an oversimplification, but essentially it activates part of the phase two detoxification pathway in the liver. And when the NRF2 pathway gets turned on, your body's going to make a little more glutathione, which at a basic level, we say, oh, that's a good thing. We should do that, right? Except here's, here's the trick. You don't need it. It's All a right. net negative because if you look at the studies, and there are some really, really striking studies where we've done this, when we actually give humans fruits and vegetables, they've done these trials where they give interventional trials. They do four to 10 weeks. They do a group of humans uh, you know, on the order of 20 to 30 people in these studies, a group of humans with high fruit and vegetable consumption, presumably lots of polyphenols. You know, They're using brassica vegetables. They're using artichoke. They're using beets. They're using apples, tons of polyphenols. And then they do a, a parallel group of humans with no vegetables, none, you know, no polyphenolic containing vegetables. And at the end of four to 10 weeks, they see no difference in the markers of inflammation or DNA damage. They're striking studies, striking. When we actually do the interventional studies, the vegetables don't do anything. They don't help us in any way. And what you're getting with the vegetables is a big load of all these toxins. So when we actually do the interventional studies, no benefit. And here's the other thing that I said, the, the hormetic effect is redundant. We don't need it. You can look at these cold water swimmers in Berlin and their glutathione gets triggered in the same way. Heat stress, a sauna will do it. Exercise will do it. All these things that we can just live a normal, quote unquote, radical life, that's sort of becoming my tagline, you know, will give you glutathione. So wait a minute. So this is the context, right? It's redundant. You don't need it. You can make plenty of glutathione and attain essentially optimal antioxidant status without these compounds. And then they're going to harm you on the back end. Well, that doesn't make sense. Like, why would you take something that's a net negative? If I said to you, hey, this, this, uh, this molecule is going to do this one good thing for you, but it's also going to do this bad thing for you. And you don't actually, that one good thing it's going to do for you is not even unique. You can just go for a run or jump in a lake or, you know, go out in the sun for a little bit or sit in a sauna with your friends. And you're going to get this really, you're going to get that same benefit. But, but you know what? Don't do that. Don't, don't do those things in your life. Just take this molecule or eat broccoli sprouts. And I'm, you know, uh, don't worry about this other thing on the back end. It's, it's going to inhibit your thyroid a little bit, but that's okay. You know, like it's going to give you this benefit. Just do that. Take my pill. It doesn't make any sense to me, you know? So this is the idea. We've sort of been sold this bill of goods, which is quite misleading that we need this, that these are beneficial from a hormetic perspective. And I would argue, uh, clearly net negative, clearly net negative, no unique benefit to these. I mean, if people, if people want to take it for glutathione, that's fine, but it doesn't make a, it doesn't make a shred of sense to me. Like, why would you take something that's going to harm you on the back end for that glutathione increase when you can get the glutathione in many other ways? And then we just, if you dig deep into it, it's quite a dark and dank rabbit hole. It's, it's, it's harming people in many other ways. So I would, and then if you look at the actual interventional studies, there's no evidence that that actually does anything, right? If the hormetic concept were actually playing out, then we would see people with fruit and vegetables with a better oxidative stress marker or less DNA damage, but we don't see it. 
So in the short term, in these like very controlled studies, if we're getting really granular with a microscope, you can make a study that looks good and say, hey, less DNA damage when you're eating sulforaphane because of the glutathione. But if you actually do the study and you look at people, no benefit. They looked at DNA damage markers, no benefit. So there's something going on here. I really think we've been misled, which is such a disruptive concept. This is why the movement is so cool. I mean, this is a, such a paradigm shifting idea. Like, wait a minute, no benefit to vegetables? Why are we eating them? Good question. I don't know. Like, it's, <laughs> and, it's, I mean, it's uh, losing I, our religion. I think, I think it's, yeah, it's going against the grain, <laughs> excuse the pun, in so many different ways because, you know, there's going to be so many listeners, me included, who are taking their resveratrol, are having their turmeric with their food, are thinking about antioxidant properties and how they can get vegetables in. You know, I've recently, you know, recently, a year and a half ago, I, I dropped um, grains for the most part. Gluten has dropped it out. Feel a lot better generally. Um, I think I'm starting to reverse a couple of different issues I was dealing with. My hunger's much better controlled. Um, and for my own reasons, albeit I don't go about suggesting no one should have gluten, you know, I've chosen that gluten or the whole kind of idea of like lectins um, in volume in my diet needed to be eliminated or at least reduced re uh, drastically. Um, I can I can understand the logic there because um, you look at wheat and you don't see you don't you, it hasn't got antioxidant properties for one right so there isn't that argument uh, there's a fiber argument which I wouldn't want to get to in a second but <laughs> it, this is this is hard to hear right this is really hard to hear Paul because you are you are challenging the very essence of what people think they're doing to look after themselves today like you're saying all these things I'm doing which are you know are, are hard they're costly you know they're a pain in the ass. You telling me I shouldn't be doing those? Okay, <laughs> I am, I am, I am. But you know, knowledge is power, and and you know, people shouldn't believe me. They should, you know, check my sources and read the studies and learn about this and listen to this podcast and others. I mean, but that's exactly what I'm telling people. And you know, I think it hurts at first. It's like you're just like, damn it, and people are kind of mad at me. But then they think, well, what if this guy's right? Like. Ultimately, I think I'm going to make people's lives easier because you don't have to like spend money on those vegetables. I mean, if you want to eat the vegetables and we can get into the flexibility arguments, you know, people can eat the vegetables if they're tolerating them. But, you know, really what I'm saying is the optimal foods are animal foods nose to tail and it makes people's lives so much easier. Like, and I would say for you, you know, throw away the resveratrol supplement and send me the money that you were spending <laughs> on it. You know, <laughs> just support my Patreon. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll show you the studies on resveratrol. Like, resveratrol is the biggest waste of money as is sulforaphane as is curcumin i mean crazy i mean if anyone you know all the clients that work with me i mean you know i i'm i'm you know i i'm a functional medicine doctor i do private practice and so i have clients that work with me and i feel like one of the greatest services i can do for them is say hey i'm going to save you so much money on supplements right now because all these supplements you're taking are garbage and you know there, there's just there's no benefit to any of these people don't need them um, and, and so all the, I mean, think about what you can do with all your resveratrol money for the year. You can I take, know. you can take your family to a nice dinner. <laughs> I just got you a trip to Disneyland, man. Like, uh, you know, throw away the curcumin, throw away the sulforaphane, like stop doing that. Like there's no benefit. I mean, so, you know, resveratrol is a great example. I'll just throw a couple of studies out there. If people want to look the first study, resveratrol reduces the levels of circulating androgen precursors. Um, Okay, that's probably not a good thing, you know. The rest, you know, like uh, it's a study from the prostate um, as the journal, and it says, you know, they were trying. They did this study in uh, men with uh, uh, they looked for 
PSA, they looked for a prostate specific antigen and stuff. And so they, they saw that like, it didn't have any effect on testosterone, dihydrotestosterone or PSA levels or prostate volume. So it had no benefit. They were trying to see if resveratrol would affect like, uh, like saw palmetto or affect prostate volume and it had no effect, but it, it, it decreased levels of circulating androgen precursors. So I don't know about you, but I don't want to decrease the levels of my androgen precursors, you know? <laughs> Another mm. trial, no, no beneficial effects of resveratrol on the metabolic syndrome, a randomized placebo-controlled trial. So, okay, wait a minute. Why am I taking resveratrol? So resveratrol treatment did not improve inflammatory status, glucose, homeostasis, blood pressure, or hepatic lipid content in middle-aged men with metabolic syndrome. Uh, in contrast, resveratrol significantly increased total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and fructosamine levels compared with placebo. Well, that sounds like it made it worse. I mean, it, that that study actually showed that resveratrol worsened metabolic syndrome in human. Uh, if we just go down the resveratrol rabbit hole for one moment, because so many people have probably heard about this, the idea is that in mice, resveratrol has been shown to normalize the effects of a bad diet. And the, the mechanism for resveratrol is by activating the sirtuin family of genes. Well, we can activate, this is similarly parallels the sulforaphane study, Activation of the sirtuin family of genes is not something that we need resveratrol for. Beta-hydroxybutyrate, ketones have been shown to do the same thing. So leading a healthy radical life can activate your sirtuin gene system. Surely activating your sirtuin gene system is a beneficial thing. It's been shown to be associated with longevity, but mostly everyone listening to this will do it normally if they have some periods of low carbohydrate or fasting or do these things. So resveratrol, it's just like sulforaphane. It's just like curcumin. Redundant effect, not unique negative benefits, uh, negative effects on the back end, net negative, clearly net negative, net negative for you as a human, net negative for your pocketbook. So mm. why would, why would we do that? I don't know. Like that's, that's what's so disruptive. Like, why would we do this? Plants don't want to help humans, you know, at best, like I said, they're, they're net neutral, but for many people, they're net negative. But their fiber does want to help us. So we're told, right? Uh, so we're told again, <laughs> Big, hit, me, hit, me, hit me with breaking, you know, breaking this other paradigm, right? Because we're told like heart healthy foods, get loads of fiber, you know, stool regularity, manage, um, you know, colon cancer, it's, you know, food satiety, all these things like get lots of fiber, it's good for you. Tell, tell me that's, Oof. that's not a lie. This is this is this is gonna rock people's world. I mean, basically, I'm gonna apologize in advance, but Santa Claus isn't real, you know. It's just like people are just like I just feel like I'm I'm the Grinch here. But <laughs> you if you act if you actually look at the data, it's it's all false, you know. And people are saying, how can that be? Well, I'll tell you the data right now. I mean, you know, you mentioned stool regularity. You know, I think that the biggest conception that people have, the biggest misconception people have, is I need fiber to poop, which is just wrong period. If you look at the actual studies, there are multiple studies that show that in people with idiopathic constipation, when you remove fiber completely, you find resolution of constipation immediately in 100% of the group. So um, that study is, uh, I, I'll have to pull it up for people, but it's often quoted. Um, and then if you look at all the other studies that have been done for people um, with uh, constipation, there is no benefit. So if you look at the literature, there's no benefit for fiber with constipation. And it's probably causing constipation in many people. In my own practice, I see a lot of people with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And clearly, in people who have dysbiosis or the wrong type of bacteria in their gut, 
increased fiber is causing a major problem. It's causing overgrowth of methanogenic bacteria, which lead to all sorts of issues with uh, sort of hypomotility and all these other problems. So the constipation and fiber is just horribly misconstrued in the, in the, in, you know, in the popular literature, even doctors are giving this bad advice for many people who can't find relief. Removing fiber is the answer. Um, yeah, absolutely. Probably because of this, you know, um, this, this issue with constipation and these uh, overgrowth of these sort of methanogenic bacteria. I mean, um, we, we do know when we have lots of Lots of vegetables that we end up farting a lot, right? <laughs> we get we get bloated. We we can feel a little bit uncomfortable if we really overdo it, especially if we we don't cook yes. our foods. You know, I, most people live with this notion that you know we we generally you know pass wind quite a lot. It's normal. You know, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of bloat. It just it's it's what happens when you eat a lot of food, right? That's just normal life. Well, I've experienced I've experienced not having that, and you're like, whoa, like is that as was that normal or common? And that, that's the difference. I think it's common, not necessarily normal. But people also say, you know, you need fiber, you need insoluble fiber for your microbiome to feed your microbiome, have a rich, diverse microbiome, which is a fascinating area of study that suggests that, you know, we're more our microbiome than we are our own DNA, and that they are pulling the triggers on our, on our genes in terms of how they're expressed and how they turn them on or off. And I, I buy into the concept of a healthy gut but we need fiber for a healthy gut, don't we? Oh, false. So <laughs> stop it. <laughs> such a disruptive concept. Such a disruptive. I mean, it, I'm just. I'm sorry. Like I'm just rocking people's worlds right now. The Easter Bunny is not real. You know, whenever you hear someone say you need fiber for a healthy gut microbiome, you have to say, oh yeah, show me the data. The data there is so poor. And I'll tell you that what I've actually seen when I look at patients and when I've seen. I've seen a lot of carnivore guts, my friend, and there's actually evidence that fasting can increase gut diversity. Well, how is that? I mean, wait a minute. You're not even eating anything. How can eating something, how can eating nothing increase gut diversity? Like, I think that what, you know, if there's actually studies, I can show you a study, I can pull it up right now, that fiber does not increase the, the alpha diversity in the gut. I mean, that has been studied, it's false. Fiber does not increase the alpha diversity in the gut. It just doesn't. Like, and so what people are being sold here is again, this is a bill of goods. This is false. Like, fiber does not increase the alpha diversity of the gut. So, you know, I had a client yesterday that I was working with, and she said, I did U Biome, which is one of these, you know, supposedly fancy things where you can look at these fragments of DNA and RNA from the bacteria in your gut. And she was told by the people at U Biome or their, their algorithm said, hey, you don't have a lot of lactobacillus. You should eat more fiber. You should eat more resistant starch. And I thought, that's completely bogus. And what happens when she does it is she just gets gas and bloating. So, is that really the answer? No. Clearly, like, you should shouldn't be miserable. I, we shouldn't be farting that much. We, we shouldn't be having painful stools. We shouldn't be having loose stools. Like that is not a healthy thing. But for most people, when they increase their fiber, when they do resistant starch, that is exactly what will happen. And the pundits continue to push this agenda and it's not supported by literature. In fact, the opposite is supported. Like I said, fiber doesn't affect the alpha diversity of the gut in a positive way. When you look at guts, of uh, people on carnivore diets. They actually have some of the highest alpha diversity I've seen. So I'll just m mention some studies to people so that people can actually fact check me. 
So the first paper regarding alpha diversity is called Dietary Fiber Intervention on Gut Microbiota Composition in Healthy Adults, a Systemic Review and Meta-Analysis, okay? So what they found was that uh, dietary fiber intervention did not affect the alpha diversity of the gut. That's in their conclusion. This is from the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2018. So wait a minute. We're being told that you need fiber for uh, an alpha diversity. An alpha diversity is just an ecological term that means the number of different species in a particular area. That, that study flies in the face of that completely. And then there are other studies that show the alpha diversity goes up when you fast. Well, that doesn't make any sense if that's the argument we're using about fiber. And there are other studies, and what I've seen in actual patients that I work with is that the alpha diversity goes up you know, quite a bit when people do a carnivore diet. So clearly this understanding is so rudimentary and people are confusing the idea. I'll just mention this other study so people can look at it because it's so striking about constipation. Stopping or reducing dietary fiber intake reduces constipation and its associated symptoms. This is 2012 in the World Journal of Gastroenterology. The title doesn't even really say it uh, um, clearly enough, but what they found was that in patients with idiopathic constipation in the group that... Uh, had zero fiber, 100% of them resolved their constipation, gas, and bloating. So the title should really say stopping or reducing fiber can completely resolve constipation in, in uh, people with idiopathic constipation. So pretty wild stuff. I mean, the idea that we need fiber for a quote-unquote healthy gut microbiome is one of the most often repeated and poorly supported tenets of functional medicine these days. It's I just, I do a face palm every time I hear it. And I, I guess the challenge we've got as listeners to this, Paul, is... Um, you can buy hundreds of books, you can listen to tons of podcasts, you can go Google uh, to your heart's content. And the overwhelming response from, you know, credible individuals that have got degrees and, you know, are MDs and are doctors and have been studying this stuff for years, will support a high fiber diet and yeah, a diet high in insoluble fiber. I'm not saying they're, they're right. Uh, and you're wrong, but this is this is a really challenging concept because it's not just one person or one company. It doesn't feel like as if it's been uh, pushed for economic benefit. You know, some of the people pushing you know these messages don't seem to be affiliated to big food in any way, shape, or form. So it's um it's a really challenging concept to you know to fully support, but. I, I I completely understand your point of view, and I'm not I'm not challenging it for the sake of it. I just think um, you're going to be met with a lot of resistance from people that have spent their life, um, you know, pushing that message, saying it's it is paramount. You know that you get fermented fiber, you have your sauerkraut, you know, you you have um, you know you have your onions, your garlic, um, your artichoke. You know, you have these things that are going to feed your microbiome. Uh, yes, you'll get some methane byproduct, but hey, that's part and parcel of your microbiome being fed. That's the message. Yeah, and I think if, I mean, I would challenge any of those people, you know, I'm actually going on a podcast with Stephen Gundry in two weeks, and okay. I'm going cha to challenge him on that notion, and I'm, hopefully I'll talk to Mark Hyman soon and David Perlmutter too, but, you know, I think that maybe what would be most beneficial for people is to have me or someone else sit down with those people and say, hey, well, show me some case studies, you know, show me the people that this has happened in, and I'll show you some of mine, because what I've seen in clinical practice is completely the reverse, you know, like... It's just not the case. Like, I think that that's the narrative that we want, and this is the conditioning. And it's, I forget who said it, but it's like if you repeat something long enough, people start to believe it is truth. I think that's one of like, maybe Karl Marx said that or someone, you know, it's like, 
in these communist ideologies, people say like, the, if you repeat something long enough, it's, it's, it's accepted as truth. And that is just like, wait a minute. Like, it's just not true. Like, I don't know how those pundits would respond to the case studies that I'm seeing and the literature that I'm citing right now. Like, and I would, I would be curious and I would, I would ask them directly, um, you know, what studies are you saying, are you showing you know, to actual, actually illustrate that. I fear that what's happening is people are using rodent data or they're using, you know, studies and they're extrapolating to people because that's not what we see in clinical practice and that's not what I think is supported by the literature. So I think this is the greatest challenge for people in the, you know, the health consumer world is who do you listen to? And I mean, I, I'm trying to be a voice of sanity and it's fun because my message is quite disruptive and people might be like, well, that's wild. I'm going to listen to that. But, you know, ultimately I think it's probably going to be like a series of debates or just like, I need to go on these other podcasts and say, Hey, like, I disagree with what you're saying. And this is why people can hear the experts talk about it because otherwise you just go down all of these uh, rabbit holes and people just get overwhelmed and that's not what I want. I just want to offer the clear information to people. And the other thing is people can just try it out in their life. You know, like that's what I would say, go on meat heels, look at the testimonials, look at the anecdotes, look at the case studies, like try it out. Like you will see the truth here. You know, it's not, it's not what you think it is, which is what's so wild. So instead of me, um, knocking on other doors as it relates to, um, debunking myths, what I'll do is I'll point towards, an episode or two that you've done elsewhere, because I know you speak about, you know, a common myth is, is cancer and how meat drives up cancer. And in that, of course, there's going to be a discussion around superfoods and seeds and how they're, they're amazing for us. And we should continue eating those. Then there's going to be a discussion around surely there's going to be vitamin and mineral deficiencies if we just have meat. But I know you've covered that previously. So I'm going to I'm going to link to a couple of your shows so we, that people can get those answers covered because I'm now really interested in pivoting towards some of the kind of practical takeaways from uh, the diet. So are we okay to go there now? Yeah, sounds great. I, I looked up the quote. It was Vladimir Lenin who said, a lie repeated often enough becomes truth. So <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got a bit of that going on. So what do you think, guys? Is, is Paul Saladino captivating to you? Is he compelling? Is he shattering some of your paradigms? I truly believe he is breaking us out of our own echo chamber of this conventional wisdom that's just been bouncing around for decades upon decades. And he's cutting through the noise and giving us something truly compelling and interesting to think about. Now, if you want to carry on this dialogue, because there's lots more of this specific discussion to go, then get yourself over to episode 78, where, as I've just mentioned, we are going to get into some of the practical applications of a carnivorous diet or at least a meat-dominant diet. So stop this now, guys. Get yourself over to episode 78 and let's carry on listening to the wonderful Dr. Paul Saladino. If you enjoy this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might also enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This is Adapt Nation.